So I have many fake plants in my office. They're nice looking plants, but they're fake. They don't actually have life in them. And don't get me wrong, they're nice decorations, but really, they are useless. They don't actually produce anything of value like oxygen or fruit or anything of that nature. You can't get anything out of these fake plants. They're just sitting there looking nice. If they were real, they might have bugs flying around them, maybe wilting a little bit. But there are external things to show that these plants are real. From a distance, they look real. But when you get closer and really examine them, you realize that they're not real. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. If you try to plant one of these fake plants that are in my office, nothing will be harvested from them because they will remain the same as they are. They're, they're, they're fake. Nothing's going to happen if you plant them. In that sense, then, they'll be torn from the ground and thrown away unless you're kind of weird and you like fake plants out in your garden. Uh, but they, that, that, they would just look dumb. <laughs> in, it would be foolish to put fake plants in the ground. In a similar way, it'd be foolish to plant good seed in bad ground. You want to plant... You want the plant to grow and prosper. You want something productive to happen with the seed. And the first step then is to plant it in good soil. What does that have to do with this morning's passage? So far in our series in Ephesians, we have walked through how Paul has talked about the identity of the church, which is the manifestation of God's new creation set forth in people who have been saved by grace through faith. And this is, therefore, the pattern for all of us as well, which is to have grace, compassion, and mercy to all people, to welcome all people, because anybody is welcome into the body of Christ. And the key here in, in Paul's text, as we're moving along through Ephesians, is that though we are saved by grace, we have been made alive with Christ, we are to welcome everybody into the church. We are to show grace. We need God's power to change our hearts. And this is what Paul prays for here once again. Remember, the gospel's vision is for life transformation. But it is God who is the one to do it in each believer. God wants life transformation in the life of each believer, in the life of the church. So this morning we turn to our passage in Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to God for it. Let's pray for the illumination of God's word by the Spirit. Lord, this morning as we look at your word, would you illuminate it, open our eyes, our spiritual eyes to see spiritual things, and would you, your word transform our minds and our hearts and our actions and our attitude. Give us grace to understand this. Would you be our teacher, O Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. For this reason, Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul begins to pray to God, but for what reason exactly? He says, for this reason. Well, what is the reason? How do we know what the reason? It seems important to understanding this prayer. What is that reason that informs this prayer? Well, based on the fact that he was beginning this prayer in verse 1, if you remember, at the beginning of, of, uh, of chapter 3 in verse 1, he writes, For this reason I, Paul... So he, it's, he, he, he's, he begins chapter 3 with that, with, that in, with that phrase, For this reason I, Paul, and we see here that he does that again. Obviously, those two things are connected. He's starting his prayer at the beginning of, of chapter 3 in verse 1, but in typical Paul fashion gets sidetracked and starts uh, and goes on this tangent again, really emphasizing the inclusion of the Gentiles and his ministry to the Gentiles. So it's, it's likely that this verse is connected, that this prayer is connected to uh, chapter 2, verse 22, which says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, so Paul is then expanding on this thought in a connection to the previous passage as well. Everything that's summed up in chapter 2 and summed up in, ch in the previous passage of chapter 3, everything that's summed up in there, that Jew and Gentile uh, make up the church, and everybody who's part of the church is being built together, being brought together to build God's temple. And for this reason, Paul prays. It's a prayer for the individual's who comprise the church. It's for those who are in the church that Paul is praying. Paul is interceding for the life of the church by praying for the life transformation of each individual member of the church. He is interceding. He is pleading with God, praying to God on behalf of the life of the church. He does that by praying for the life transformation of each individual member of the church. He is praying for the unity of the church by praying for the heart transformation of each participant. Now here in this passage, he's not actually using that word unity, but later on in the letter, he is praying, but he is talking about having unity. It's really implied in the letter that this is, this is about unity between uh, Jew and Gentile specifically, but that all of God's people would be united. Uh, that the multi-ethnic church would be united, uh, but he, but Paul is really emphasizing the unity of the church. He's praying for it, and he's praying for unity by praying for the heart transformation of each participant. Maybe that's something we need to do. 
And this is the beginning of the content of his prayer uh, as we begin in, in verse 16. In accordance with the riches of God's glory, Paul's prayer is that God would impart to the inner, belie- uh, inner being of believers strength with the power of the Holy Spirit and that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. So he begins this prayer, Spirit giving, praying that the Spirit would give strength in their inner being, that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. So what does this all mean then? Why does Paul pray that we would have strength in our inner being through the Spirit? Well, Paul's desire is that they would know the power of God in their own lives. He writes in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And in Colossians 1.11, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. In Philippians 4.13, Paul knows the strength of Christ through the Holy Spirit allows him to remain content in all situations. In that passage, he's saying, I can, I can be, remain content in this situation I can be content in this situation because it is Christ who gives me strength in all of these situations. In Colossians 1.11, though, he prays that they would be strengthened to be able to persevere through suffering. When Paul speaks about being empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's not thinking of another Pentecost event where the Spirit is being poured forth into each believer again, as some scholars note. We don't need the Holy Spirit again. He's not praying that the Spirit would enter into the believers again. He's praying for a renewal, re-empowering, more empowering. We need to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit for our Christian life. And Paul asks God that he would provide each believer with power for their Christian life. Just as he needed strength to be content in all situations, the Colossian Christians needed strength for endurance through the trial. We need strength for the Christian life in our inner being. And Paul explains that further on, why we need strength. What, is, what exactly is the strength that we need in this particular situation? But for the Christian life, it is necessary. We need the strength of the Holy Spirit for many different reasons, for contentment. Uh, to, for endurance, and we'll, we're going to really dig more deeply as we get uh, as we go forward in this passage of what exactly we need the strength uh, of the Holy Spirit for. The next request is for Christ to dwell in the hearts of each believer, which is really another way of saying the inner being. But doesn't Christ dwell in our hearts already? Doesn't he come into our hearts when we become Christians? As one scholar notes, yes, both the Holy Spirit and Christ indwell believers, but yet Paul asks that they may reside in each believer's heart. Another scholar notes that this phrase means that Paul desires for them to experience the nearness of Christ's presence. He writes, The inner being is the sphere of strengthening by God's Spirit, and the place where Christ seeks to exert his reign in the lives of his people. One scholar notes, 
Further, the inner self stands in need of strengthening in view of its struggle against the power of sin and for its daily renewal. In other words, the Holy Spirit and Christ dwell in the inner being of each believer in order to exert their reign and bring life transformation. The Holy Spirit and Christ, they are in each believer, exerting their reign, bringing life transformation to each and every believer. In verse 17b to 19, Paul writes, That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ as surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It seems like he has started a new thought, but it's almost as if he's rewording the previous thought. It's as if he's starting something new here, but I think really he's taking what he said previously and rewording it. He's really trying to get, really trying to get in there, show you what he's, what he is desiring to happen. We want to stop first at you being rooted and grounded in love. This is my sermon title, and I think this is the center of the passage. It's a commentary on the indwelling presence of God in the believer's inner being. By being indwelled by God, the believer is on the journey of being rooted and grounded in love. That word being in connection with rooted and grounded implies that being rooted and grounded is a continual process. It indicates that the end goal is to be completely enveloped in love. Love, then, is the foundation of God's temple. It's a, that theme from two, uh, chapter 2, verse 22. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There, he's indicating that God's dwelling place on earth is continually being built. That There's an end goal, and it's not going to be finished until Christ brings heaven to earth and makes all things new. So at the same time, each believer is being rooted and grounded in love. The inner being of each believer is being transformed by love in order to have actions that are more loving, that our, our actions would be more loving. So the foundation of the temple, of God's new temple, which is built through believers, that foundation is love. The, the foundation is Jesus Christ. We, we see in chapter 2, uh, Christ being the cornerstone. Well, if Christ, if we're being indwelled by Christ and the Holy Spirit, we're being rooted and grounded in love, then the foundation of the temple is love. And it's about being transformed by love, the inner being of each believer being transformed by love. For those who are being rooted and grounded in love, that is, every believer, Paul prays that they would have the strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul wants each believer to know the vastness of Christ's love. His love is abundant. His love is immeasurable. And though it's beyond the knowable, Paul still prays that we would be able to comprehend the vastness of Christ's love. Though we cannot fully know it, 
Paul still prays that we would be able to have, to comprehend it, to comprehend it somehow, to know the little bit of God's love. This is what he's talking about in verse 16 when he prays for the strength of the Holy Spirit. He again prays in verse 18 that they would have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. This is what he prays for in verse 16 when he prays for the strength of the Holy Spirit. His hope then is that each believer would know the power of God by being strengthened by the Holy Spirit in order to understand Christ's abundant love. So as we're being rooted and grounded in love, we truly have to understand Christ's love in order for it to transform our own lives. We need to know that love the love of Christ, we, as we're being transformed, we need to understand it, that it would transform our own lives. At the same time as knowing the vastness of Christ's love, Paul prays that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Again, what does it mean? What does that mean to be filled with the fullness of God? One scholar says, that Paul's request is not that they would be filled with the characteristic of God, but with God himself. Being filled with the fullness of God means that one is filled with love, for God is love himself. So, each believer is to be filled with the fullness of God, but at the same time, by being filled with the fullness of God, one is filled with love. Though Paul is not asking for that, it, it just it, it 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 is so deeply connected. You cannot you cannot have God without having love. Another scholar contends that knowing and experiencing the love of Christ means that one is filled with the fullness of God. Being filled of, with God. Being full of God is the goal of the Christian life, and no one experiences God's fullness unless he or she is full of love. Did you catch that? Nobody can experience the fullness of God without at the same time being full of God's love. The same scholar notes that Paul prays to be filled with God and love because it is something that we cannot do for ourselves. This scholar writes, no one can conjure up such an experience. No one can demand it. No one can produce it from his or her own resources. Believers need the power of God to experience the love of God. Believers need the power of God to experience the love of God. Believers need the power of God to know the fullness of God. Only God creates in us a love for God. And this is why Paul prays. Again, only God can further our love for God. And Paul knows that nobody can do this on their own. Remember back to chapter 2, where Paul wrote that we were made alive with Christ through grace. We were dead, and we couldn't bring ourselves back to life. And since we were dead, and since we couldn't bring ourselves back to life, uh, Pardon me, since we were dead, we could not bring ourselves back to life. Still, uh, in the Christian life, we do not have the capacity to be transformed by love through our own ability. 
We couldn't bring ourselves back to life. It was by God's power. And so it is in the Christian life. How can we expect to be transformed by our own abilities? It is through the power and strength of the Holy Spirit in our own lives, transforming us, uh, being transformed by love. We need divine power and strength. And again, just as Paul wrote in chapter 1 in his prayer in chapter 1, he, he wrote there that we need the Holy Spirit to understand spiritual things. Would he give you the spiritual eyes to understand spiritual things? That's what he prays in chapter 1. And so we need here the Holy Spirit in order to love God and love one another. We need the Spirit to know spiritual things and we need the Holy Spirit to be transformed in love. We need God for for everything. Let's dwell for a moment again on what it looks like to be rooted and grounded in love. Think about my analogy from the beginning. It matters what kind of ground a plant is in. And it needs to be properly fertilized. It needs water. Without food and water, no plant will come from a seed, just like any of us. How can we expect to, to live without our, the basic necessities of life. To be rooted and grounded in love, then, an individual needs to be fed with love. And the source of one's love is God. The fruit that comes from being rooted and grounded in love is to love others. We are indwelt by God. We are rooted in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the soil that we are rooted in, and we need to know the love of God in order to continue to, to grow and be rooted in love. It's almost as if we're in a, a bucket of cement. It's a weird analogy, but we're in a, our feet are in a bucket of cement, and somehow our, our feet are growing and growing, and... Uh, and now the analogy is getting a little bit weirder. Think about it this way. That bucket of cement is actually the love of God. And our feet are standing in that love of God. And it's a very tangible thing. That's what I was thinking about the cement. But the love of God and our feet are growing into it. And the love of God is pouring into our veins. Into our spiritual veins. Think about that. That's really what's going on. Is that our, we're, our, we're planted in this spiritual bucket of love and this love is coursing through our spiritual veins and it's transforming us in our inner being in order to uh, change our outward actions first john 4 7 says beloved let us love one another for love is from god and whoever loves has been born of god and, and knows god further in first john 4 verses 12 to 13 no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. How do we love others? By thinking of their needs before ours. By thinking of others is more important than ourselves. It is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, as Philippians 2.3 says. To be rooted in love means to be patient and kind. 
Being rooted and grounded in love means that we are not envious, boastful, or arrogant. Being rooted and grounded in love means that we do not insist in our own way or become irritable or resentful. Love is looking past our desires and looking how to serve our neighbors. 1 John 4.9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the manifestation of God's love. This is what love looks like. Giving of yourself, giving, looking past your own needs, thinking about the needs of others. And God sent his son into the world. And Jesus Christ looked past his needs. If, if Jesus would have given in to what he wanted, we would, we would all be, uh, our, our destinies would be a lot different. And yet, Jesus looked past his own needs and died for the world. That is the manifestation of love. That is our example of love. So then, as one scholar notes, the strengthening with might for which Paul prays takes place through the Spirit of God, i.e. through Christ, present in the Spirit to strengthen believers with his power. The goal is the inner man. The result is a true, lasting, and indissoluble relationship with Christ and attachment to him. But it is also a manner of life and conduct whose basis and theme are love. A plant needs fertilization to be a plant that is alive and produces anything of meaning. It needs to be in that good soil. It needs to have good food. The Christian who is rooted and grounded in love needs God's love in order to grow deeper into love and to be transformed into an individual who loves others. In verse 20, Paul moves into what seems like a different thought altogether again. But it's all connected. He's really just moving into a doxology as a, as a result of what God has done. In other words, theology results in doxology. When we dwell on God's gracious acts, we are moved to praising Him. Theology means theology should result in doxology. What we know about God should result in our praising, uh, in, in our worship of God, how we worship Him. And Paul is in recognition of the immense power of God, who is able to do far more abundantly all than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. It's a song of praise for the way in which God is already at work in each believer, growing them in Love. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And that power is already at work in us, transforming us, growing us in love. And as a result of this life-changing power already at work in believers, Paul wishes for God to be glorified through the church and through Jesus Christ throughout all generations. The church is the institution through which God's glory is elevated, lifts God's name high. How do we do that? Through the power at work in us that is transforming us into individuals filled with love. The church that is being rooted and grounded in love glorifies God when the church, his new creation, reflects his character on earth by showing love to others. God is glorified through his church 
when his people love others, love each other and love others. As a corporate institution, God is glorified when the church is gracious, compassionate, and loving toward all people who enter into this building and to those outside of this building. I want to bring this all together and bring a conclusion. Paul prays that we would grow into Christ's love as individuals and as the church, and as this happens, God would be glorified. Paul's prayer is for each believer that their life transformation would contribute to the health and well-being of the church, and most importantly, the world. It matters that each member is growing in love, for each member is contributing to the well-being of the church. Our actions affect other members of the church. It does matter that we grow in love. So instead of wondering, what can I get from coming to church? The question that we should seek to answer in our own lives is, what can I give to the church? That is, to the members of the body of Christ. What can I give? What can I do? Instead of saying, what can I get? What can I do? The gospel is revealed in this way. People who are being rooted and grounded in love, manifesting God's love in their own lives toward other people for the glory of God. So what are we rooted in? Does the fruit we are producing show that we uh, does the fruit we are producing show what we are rooted in? Thank God that we don't have to try to produce fruit on our own strength. We don't have to do that. We have the Holy Spirit on our, on our side. But we need the strength of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling Christ to fill us with the fullness of God and, at the same time, His love. The question is, are we seeking the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we as a church seeking to glorify God? If God's glory is reflected to the members of the church, do you think that we as the corporate body glorify God? If He returned today, would Jesus say to us, Well done, good and faithful servants. You are rooted and grounded in love, and you have shown it by loving your neighbors well. O Lord, help us to love our neighbors. As we are being rooted and grounded in love, give us the strength to know the love of Christ, that it would compel us to good works and to loving our neighbor. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.